Welcome to ConX, a global leadership platform for construction executives. Uh, today, I have uh, Brian Stevenson, um, and I promise, uh, I said to myself I was never going to have a lawyer on the podcast, but I didn't have a choice because Brian's such a nice guy. So, um, but uh, t- uh, rather than me telling everybody about you, Brian, why don't you tell us, tell us about yourself and your organization and and kind of kind of start from where you went to school where you grew up sure well hey scott thanks for having me on and uh i'm sorry i made you break your own rule by having an attorney <laughs> on but uh, this is a great platform thanks for taking the time to put it on you, you have a lot of people that have chimed in before and, and hopefully i can help broaden the conversation a little bit like you said uh, my name is Brian Stevenson. I am attorney at what our firm is Ward, Hawker, and Thornton. Mm-hmm. We're a law we're a law firm that works with uh, principals, architects, engineers, trades, and owners on issues that arise from land acquisition, platting and permitting, design, construction, job interruption, sometimes job performance, a lot of times, mm-hmm. and then property damage or personal injuries that arise during or after the job. Our uh, footprint is statewide and a little regional. We have offices in Lexington and in Louisville. Our primary focus is Kentucky. I have a a large map of Kentucky and with little pins in it on where projects are and whatnot. And I think we've been in every county but two just in the last three years. Uh, We handle projects, claims, and lawsuits also in Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee as well. But, but Kentucky is the main footprint. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as, uh, you know, kind of a little bit about my history and how I got to be into this, I'm from Lexington originally. I grew up there, played any sport that I could growing up, but mostly basketball and baseball. I went to college down in Alabama played baseball for a few years and then started realizing that I probably need to study a little harder than I was. Um, <laughs> came, came home for law school and then 25 years flew by. Next thing you know, here we are talking. Um, but it's funny getting in the construction industry a little bit because growing up, I could, I always liked to draw and I could design things and I could just sketch out a building with pretty good symmetry and come up with stuff. So I thought I wanted to be an architect or an engineer, but uh, there's a whole lot of math with both of those, and that's not something I enjoy, so that wasn't <laughs> going to happen. Um, that's then, funny. That's why I'm not an engineer, because I, uh, I got to count two, and I said, you know what? Maybe this is not what I want to do. Yeah, I, I remember I had a Caltu Bosnian professor and uh, was writing things on the board that just looked like symbols to me. And that's when I just started staring longingly out the window like, whoa, <laughs> this is going to be a rough semester. Um, but, hey, it was around the, the age of 18. Uh, I was working not a good summer job on a demo from a, a fire loss, of all things, at a molding company that uh, I saw how attorneys could be involved at different levels, and it interested me. So early on in my career, I got involved with some homes that were under construction, some issues there, and then there were some fire losses, and then some very large fire losses, uh, some that are famous, and I realized why the design had played a role in the spread, propagation, things like that. And the next thing you know, you you get another file, you get another file, and it just kind of takes off from there. So um, about your organization, um, 
kind of how did it start up? You know, how, you know, I know you guys, I didn't realize you guys had an office in Lexington. I knew you guys had an office in Richmond, but. Um. So the way it started up is uh, it, it really is the byproduct of the insurance industry because especially on public projects, you have to get a bond mm-hmm. or on private projects. A lot of times there's a requirement for insurance in, in different amounts. And especially if you're involved trades, you got subs, you'll have workers' compensation or just liability. And then there'll be indemnity agreements. So originally from the insurance side, as claims started popping up kind of in the mid-90s, um, there's this provision in your insurance contract that will say if you know a claim arises, even if it's just a, an interruption issue, you might have to bring uh, the principal involved or the bond company to see about getting performance or to complete the project. Or if there's property damage or personal injuries, um, you might have to investigate what's going on there to correct it or, or pay. So it really started off as an offshoot from the insurance side of things that the insurance companies were looking for help on, hey, is this a project that we need to just go in and take over and finish and then try to get money back from someone? Uh, or can it be completed? Is there really even an issue here or is it just a financial situation because someone doesn't want to pay or they're not in the ability to pay anymore? Or, you know, somebody got hurt and you try to figure out what happened, uh, whose responsibility is it and go from there. So one thing leads to another as you, you know, meet people and talk and start to form relationships. Well, you know, someone has a need outside of, of how you originally met them, but it's something that you can help them with. And, and so those connections just start to kind of multiply. And before you know it, uh, there's more things to do than there is time to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, wait, so your core focus is your core focus of your, of your law firm uh, construction or do you guys do a lot of different things? We do a lot of different things. However, we do have a construction group. And I hate to kind of dodge the question, but really when it comes to our core focus, it's to understand why someone needs an attorney for the problem at hand and how we might be able to help. Because sometimes they're concerned, they, they, they heard something or someone reached out to them and they're like, man, I need an attorney. And so they don't, you don't want to have to talk to an attorney. (laughs) You like, Oh, they're expensive. They're going to, they're going to get me into litigation. And so we want to encourage people. It's like, no, call me. Uh, Because a lot of times I can say, you don't need an attorney. You need an accountant or you need just to go back to the city and figure out something with this plat. Don't, I, I love to work, but not if I'm not needed. And they appreciate that. They're like, okay. So our core focus is really to understand why is someone reaching out to us and is it something that we need to get involved with and sometimes it is uh but a lot of times it's really just creating a space for the other parties to talk to one another and it's like look uh, the example i'll give you is uh especially as the economy you know cycles up and down sometimes you'll a client will come in with a list of five things that someone's saying is wrong on a project and they think that they need to hire an attorney to protect themselves and to get involved and after listening in a couple of phone calls, you're like, what really needs to happen is your accountant just needs to go sit down with their accountant because the real problem here is that they have run into some financial issues. And if they can just restructure the timing of the debt or the payment plan, then I think all these things would resolve because the issues they're complaining about are really 
just them saying they're not happy with it because they want to renegotiate. So let's stop saying that stuff and let's just talk about the, the financial side of it because that's the driving issue here. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I've talked to them and that's really what's going on here. Not that they wouldn't say what they've already told you again if it came to it, but privately, this is the real concern and, and they didn't know how to say that and save face. So they told me it and I'm saying, go, go talk to them and avoid an attorney altogether. So our core focus is being available there in the construction industry. And sometimes you have to go to arbitration or court and talk about things. But a lot of times there's a simpler driving issue if you can ever figure out what it is. So how, how do, you know, in the, in the legal world or the legal business world, I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to, to, to plan for the future, but I'm sure you guys do. But obviously a lot of stuff is there's a lot of you know reasons why people need attorneys they constantly need, i mean we let's be real here i mean attorneys are a key part of construction altogether um but uh do you guys have like a planning process or hey uh, you know i was always interested in how how from a business perspective how a law firm actually works sure well from a planning perspective on the litigation side we're kind of in risk management and litigation mm -hmm. And, and that's important because a lot of times whatever has occurred has already happened, meaning the crane already collapsed on the site. So whatever happened, happened. We can't prevent it. It, it happened. And now we need to go out and investigate, you know, was this an act of God? Did someone tamper with it? Was a pit? What, you know, what happened? Uh, so it's hard to plan for those things because who knows when the next accident is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So from the law firm side of things, you, <laughs> as far as team people, you, you hope that your job becomes obsolete because you've done such a good job of educating people about workplace safety and things that go wrong and, and indemnity agreements so that they don't get caught in a situation where in order to get a job, they've agreed to indemnify everybody and their grandmother all the way you know, down to the, the smallest sub so that you're not needed. So it is this delicate line between doing the best that you can to inoculate people from the potential risk versus, you know, when something happens, it happens, and then you just kind of have to roll up your sleeves and get going. So that makes it tough to plan in the sense that, you know, what's the law firm going to do? However, I mean, let's be realistic. Since the beginning of time, humans have been building dwellings and civilizations. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to build things even as it evolves, that that building materials and the building processes evolve, we're going to be building things and we're going to have to help with that because issues are going to arise during the process. And then a lot of it's cyclical, you know, as the economy swings up and down, construction starts swinging up and down, revitalization, the downtown areas start. And with that, issues arise here and there knock on wood again hopefully nothing too serious but it's just a percentages thing as you see a bunch of starts you're going to see some issues it's kind of like driving right mm -hmm. now there aren't as many car accidents because there's not as many people on the road uh during the COVID 19 restrictions but it's just math like hey humans are going to make mistakes uh we have more cars on the road the percentage of accidents doesn't necessarily go up, but the number of accidents goes up because you got more people out there. 
You know, I ha- I get a lot of phone calls about, you know, just people I know, friends I know, and actually some clients I have just asking me because, you know, I kind of keep my ear to the street a little bit about, you know, what's happening, especially with this, this COVID thing. Such a big unknown. People are I've gotten more phone calls in the last month than I've ever than I've ever gotten over a month period of time. And most of it is just what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, what do you see happening? And so I kind of want to turn that to a question for you. Do you see, you know, do you, what do you see happening from, you know, in the construction industry? Um, uh, not It doesn't have to be just legal related, but have you seen any significant events that have kind of turned and kind of changed over the last month? Or is there not have been enough time to be able to tell? Um, two things that I've noticed so far. One there wasn't much job interruption for the projects that were already underway, meaning the financing was already there, the material was already in the works or on site. Uh, people used, you know, a lot of construction projects, you can kind of social distance yourself there. Um, and there already are masks being worn if, you know, you're grinding or creating dust. Um, so aside from getting to the job site, maybe grabbing lunch, and commuting you know, to and from, there's a, it's a lot of natural social distancing. So a lot of those projects just kind of were full steam ahead. The money's there, the incentives are there to get it completed and to get the occupancy permits. Uh, so that was one thing is that you're like, wow, everyone's just knocking it out because they're like, this is a, a kind of a sure thing. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the flip side, the other thing that we've seen is more of a real estate slash construction is that People in the in office buildings uh, and plants, they're trying to figure out how to repurpose space. Are we going to need more space because we're going to when we hopefully return to a more traditional sense of normal, we we have to we can't have people as close as they they've been used to. So we're going to have to expand the the floor space. We're going to have to give people more larger offices, more distance as they walk, or as some companies that are more service providers can function through the internet, uh, are they going to need office space at all? Or is everyone going to just work remotely? And so I think that's the evolving trend that we're seeing, at least as people are struggling with, what do we need to do? Do we need to be obtaining financing? Because all other things being equal in the economy, there are you know lenders that are wanting to be aggressive and capital groups that are wanting to be aggressive. Um, but there's some people that are concerned that I don't need the office space I currently have. Why do I want to expand? Um, and so that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I think the answer, like a lot of things in life is going to be depends on who you ask. Some companies are going to be able to function pretty well remotely, but even then we're seeing it. There's some people that do well remotely. Some people want to be in an office and around others. And so I don't, I don't know how that's going to play out, but that's those are the two things that are interesting is to see that uh, how how quickly projects were kind of continuing on their pace, and then how people were trying to repurpose existing structures to figure out what they're going to do with them. And, and that's interesting because you can look at it, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't even think about it in that context of the fact that this is an opportunity. In addition, and I hate to put it that way, but the fact is, is that in the, when we look at construction strictly from a business perspective, 
it's not 100% bad news that the world has changed because the world has changed and there made, there's a need, you know, that needs to be fulfilled. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you, if you we had the need arise, so we were acutely, acutely aware of it, but the HVAC companies that are now really doubling down on air scrubbers, HEPA filters, types of things that you might only see in hospitals. Now, a lot of universities, high schools, and elementary schools are like, gosh, do we need to upgrade our uh, heating and cooling systems to where we have these things? And the answer to a lot of them is yes. How are we going to do that? Because uh, you know, you, you can see that if you have proper equipment that you can address not just coronavirus, but just the flu virus, anything that's airborne or it lands on contact surfaces, if you can oxidate the agents in the air, there's the potential to help eliminate or minimize those types of transmissions in your buildings. And now all of a sudden, you know, Scott, if you can market your office space as being one that has this type of equipment and mine's 30 years old and I don't, there's obviously going to be a price point difference on the rents, but your building's now a lot more attractive than mine is just because you can tell all of your customers and your tenants that look, look at what we're doing to protect the air quality and the services in the building. Just every, when you walk in, it, it even helps with allergies. So little things like that are, you know, opportunities in these trying times that they're smart people out there. They're going to figure those things out. And if, it even comes into the egress with buildings. We're seeing how people are trying to redesign it so that you don't have touch points, like no doors. They're going to have automatic. Or if you do have the uh, kind of the carousel type doors, they're repositioning where they are because air drafts are so strong that you can't, those doors don't work in certain spots. So uh, we've seen that with some buildings in Louisville that they're redesigning how you come and go just to, just to promote a sense of, I can get all the way to my office space without having to touch anything. Yeah, I've got a key card that lets me in. I've got a key card that scans when I get to the elevators. It automatically takes me to my floor. Now, if I want to go to a different floor, that's an issue, but it's going to take you right to your floor. It's going to open. You're going to enter your own door the same way. So you can get all the way to your desk without having to touch anything. And that's not the way that we've traditionally seen buildings. Yeah, no no joke. And that, you're, you're right there. That's It's just interesting. It really is interesting how... This is, although it, there's a, there's a lot of trouble. I mean, I from my office, I bought a fogger, a disinfectant fogger, and I, it, yeah. it's it's actually wonderful. Before we at the end of the day, when everybody leaves, uh, my administrative assistant fogs the entire office, and it's just like, you know, I mean, what we have found is that um, during this time, we have seen people get sick, and we don't have the sickness like we did last year. And that could be just an anomaly or it could be, hey, maybe we're just being more conscious, you know. So um, and it, it probably probably has a lot less to do about the office and a lot less to do more to do about what their behavior is also. But uh, no, and that's right, because we're going to we're all in this time where we just need more information, more data. And six months from now, 12 months from now, 18 months from now we'll be able to tell, is there a correlation or causation? Because right now, to your point, you're like, hey, this, you know, I don't know if it's helping or not, but we are seeing, you know, less instances of people just getting the common cold or sickness. Uh, and now, is that attributed to the fogger or things they're doing at home? Who knows, but it's a good thing either way. And, and you'll start to see things like that. And we're, we're all going to have to learn from it. Speaking of um, kind of the you know, the, the current, you know, environment that we're in, um, 
from he, I was kind of surprised that it seems like you you guys do a lot more uh, you know as a, as lawyers more a lot less litigation and a lot more communication. I always tell people I say you find a good lawyer it's he's more about communication and try to solve this without obviously spending the money to have to go all the way through litigation, you know? I mean, um, can you, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? How, you know, and it, it sounds like you guys kind of take that perspective too. You want to, you want to get clients and protect them, uh, as much as possible, not just protect them from other people, but protect them, uh, from potential losses. That's absolutely correct. Um, Litigation in the sense of the Perry, you know, uh, Masons and the Matlocks and the courtroom dramas that you see on TV, um, it isn't going away. It's still there, but it's very limited. We're a litigation firm. Uh, we have almost 40 attorneys. We try cases. But even then, if two to five cases a year go to trial, that's a pretty good year. Most, especially in the arbitration sense, most go through arbitration because there are those clauses in the arbitration I mean, in the contracts that talk about look, look, look. If something goes wrong, we're not going to go to litigation. We're going to go to arbitration. We're going to agree upon an arbitrator, and we're just going to streamline the process because it does save time and money. So, court in the traditional sense is still available and it's still out there, but no, for the most part, it's about arbitration or even mediation where you're going to go to someone that you agree to hear both sides grievances and you're just going to work together as painful as that might be because people have figured out that you can control your outcome that way if you go to trial you're arguing in front of uh, 12 strangers that are from the community that may or may not have any background or expertise in whatever issue you present before them and it's, it's not a crapshoot, but you could present the same. This is always the analogy. I've seen it because we've done mock trials. You can present the same set of facts to five different jury panels, and you'll get two that do exactly what you think they should. You'll get two that kind of got to the same ballpark, you understand, but they came at a completely different angles. And then you'll have one that's talking about issues you have. You're like, what are they talking about? Like, no one even said this. They just grab something that someone thinks they heard or a theme that someone picked up on. And the next thing you know, you get a result that leaves everyone scratching their head. And so, especially construction, for the most part, you're dealing with professionals that, you know, some might be more educated than others, but you're dealing with professionals that have a certain level of expertise about that issue. And they would much rather control the outcome and agree upon it, then just turn it over to the group of strangers, which I, I'm not, the jury definitely tries to get it correct. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of uncertainty about how they're going to approach their job and, and what outcomes they're going to give you. Yeah. And I've had the unfortunate, I shouldn't say unfortunate, I should say fortunate, but I've had the unfortunate, uh, seems like Jasmine County, every time my two years comes up to serve on a, ju a jury, I get a letter. You know, so oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and my and my wife, on the other hand, we've lived here for 13 years and she's never, <laughs> never had to start on a jury. So but uh, I can tell you that, it, that well, as you you very well know, it's it, who you have there, how what they remember from the situation. You know, there's so many variables there, you know, so um, speaking, you know, construction specifically, um, 
what are the things that, you know, you're, most of our, our audience is construction executives in one capacity or another. And obviously they're, they're trying to solve problems. You know, I always say that when it gets to the, the project exec or the construction executive, uh, it's not an easy problem to fix, but they're trying to fix a lot of those problems. If you had to give, you know, one of the, one of the listeners advice on, you know, things they should do and things they, they, they shouldn't do in general, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, if it's a construction construction executive and they're working with a customer, um, so they've already got the account and everything. I would say that the biggest thing I see is manage expectations. Cause that's the thing that always somehow the, the, whether you're working with the owner, the architect, the GC, somewhere the person that you're having the issue with has an expectation about the project, the timeliness, something that's not being met. And a lot of times that stems from earlier in the relationship or conversation, they got an idea that it was gonna look a certain way or it was gonna happen a certain way, um, and it's not. And that's where the, they get upset and they might come to you and be like, oh, so-and-so is a horrible sub. I don't know why they're out there. Why do you, but and what they're really saying is that they basically take off every Friday. This job should have been done a month ago. Why is it so slow? And if you realize where their expectation is coming from and the basis for it, a lot of times you can help with that. And I mean, I got a lot of examples I can give, some funny, <laughs> uh, some horribly inappropriate, but accurate <laughs> as to how people got their expectations wrong. But it, it's really trying to manage that because as, as the at the executive le level, um, you're not necessarily on site, you know, running a generator and they're doing some of those things. You are making sure the next project's already on the, on the books, or you're making sure that the material is going to get there timely. And so you're busy. It's easy to, to not, it's not that you don't care, but it's, it's easy to lose sight of some of those smaller points that are going to become the things that are problematic. And so that's my biggest thing is there's a takeaway. It's like, gosh, just make sure you're always checking in with whoever your point person is as to what their expectations are and if they're being met. And a lot of times, even if an expectation is not being met, say it's timeliness, if you just give an honest answer as to what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, as to why it's being delayed or when the completion date is going gonna, is gonna to arrive, people, for the most part, are good with that because they, in their own position, are also managing expectations of others. And they appreciate the fact that if there's a, a solid answer for something, they're good with that. Um, and, and a lot of times, if they're not, they come up with a solution about, well, I hear you, but I really need whatever. And is there a way to accomplish that? And, and so then you can pivot on the fly and pull that off. So I know that's kind of a, a general um, answer. But it's because at the end of the day, a lot of times when I sift through some of these issues, what I find out is that, you know, they just thought it was going to look different or they thought it was going to happen quicker or they thought that they were going to use a contractor who their brother-in-law really liked and that person isn't there. And so once you tell them, well, they're, they're not there because they're so busy over in Cynthia 
that we couldn't get them here in time to get your stuff done before that summer party you wanted. Then they're like, I'm good with that. Then I didn't really like my brother-in-law that much anyway. But <laughs> as long as you can tell people that, that's the that's the thing. And, and, and it's that's easier said than done when you're busy with other stuff. Well, you know, what's interesting you say about that is that um, one of the certifications I have is the PMP. And one of the concepts that PMI teaches, because I taught the PMP uh, certification exam for many years, and one of the one thing that they always push is that you need to address uh, controversial issues up front, you know, and, it, and failure to do so will ultimately result in those coming up later. And they'll be a lot more difficult to deal with later uh, than, they, couldn't, you know, so couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Managing expectations is a, is a huge, huge one. Um, and uh, I have I have two. I, I was told this by somebody when I first started construction, and I didn't know what these two things meant, these two concepts or the two, these two items. But and I, I ask you this because I get this question a lot, and so um, and so I'm not trying to throw you on the bus by asking you this, but you mentioned one of them. So if you had sure. to explain to somebody what indemnification is, what would you say? In common sense language, it means that you agree to accept someone else's wrongdoing. So, I mean, I'll just cut out all the legalese and basically uh, say it's like you or your brother or a buddy. It's like, all right, if they wreck their bike and damage it, I'm agreeing to fix the bike. I mean, you are agreeing to fix something that somebody else did. And a lot of times that is like, well, wait a minute. I, if, if I caused it, I'll agree to pay for it. But if you caused it or someone sues you and says you did it wrong, why should I step in your shoes? Like, I don't know how you're running your business or doing things. And so there's more nuance to it than that. You can get more specific. But in general, when you're saying indemnification, the big umbrella thing is you're agreeing to be responsible for somebody else. And so if I just said it in those terms, it should give you pause. You're like, wait. I'm agreeing to be responsible for somebody else. Like, well, do I get any say in what they do or how, to what extent am I agreeing to be responsible for somebody else? Like up to my insurance or me personally, my company. So, and a lot of times it's just insurance and you can get into that as a way of risk shifting and, and, and controlling the scope of a project as to who's really the GC and how the subs go. But I mean, indemnity in its, in its basic sense is you're agreeing to be responsible for someone else and, and to pay if they cause damages. And the other big question I get as far as words go, or as far as concepts go is the second one, and I'll let you explain this, is a waiver of segregation. So you'll see in a lot of, in a lot of clauses where the two parties agree that they can't sue each other. So say you and I enter into a, con a contractual relationship to uh, excavate uh, and we're going to put in a cistern on a, a remote property and I'm going to do the excavation work, but I can't put in the cistern. So I, I get you involved. Like Scott, you come out with your company, you put in the cistern, you run the lines, but I'm the one that knows the owner. So I'll get us both in. Uh, but here's the thing. If anything goes wrong and I have to pay something, for something you did, or you have to pay something for something I did, we, we agree not to sue one another. We'll, we'll, we'll just work it out. We'll figure it out. So they'll have this clause in there that says that you won't pursue subrogation against each other if you have to pay something. Fine. The problem with it is 
sometimes the insurance companies that I then go on to hire or you go on to not hire, but pay, I pay for my insurance, you pay for your insurance. They don't know that I've got insurance with company A and you've got insurance with company B. They don't know we have this clause that said there's no subrogation. So say I end up paying something because I'm the one that knew the owner and I brought you in because I knew you could do a better job than I ever could. And my insurance company pays for damage to the buried electrical line that furnished the swimming pool because we never, neither one of us borrowed to get a locate because we're out in the middle of nowhere and you hit it when you were doing the work, but I'm the one that knew the owner. So we paid three grand to fix all, everything we blew out there. And then my insurance company wants you to pay back the three grand. Well, then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's this clause that says we won't seek subrogation. And, but the insurance companies didn't know about it. So then they start fighting with each other about that. Thank you. That's it. That, that, uh, and, and I get those com- I believe it or not, I get those, those questions all the time for those two, uh, you know, the, the really definition and explanation of those two. And, uh, um, uh, the, the, what I always tell people is this is a lot bigger deal than you think it is. <laughs> you know, like you yeah, said. Yeah, I mean, it can turn into, I mean, there are cases right now where that is the only issue is indemnity. I mean, everything else has been resolved and it's like, hey, can we move money from left pocket to right pocket? Or can we move it from, you know, one person completely to another? And on, on big enough accounts, it's important because say that you know you've got a couple hundred million dollars worth of work great um well when you try to bid out to different in- you'll go to an insurance broker and there you're you've got you lay your book of business in front of them they look at your loss history and if you have more claims and more payouts whether it's to your own employees or third parties well your underwriting score it's just like a credit score is not going to be as good as say my company that doesn't have any of those things. Or if I did have a claim, I was able to get indemnity from someone else. So me and my insurance company got reimbursed. So my premiums, which, you know, some of these companies, the premium alone is a a very substantial number. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that impacts the ability to get insurance cheap at a cheaper rate. So it's important when you start looking at, hey, I didn't have to do a whole lot, but my, I can indemnify a bunch of people. Well, when you, pres- you sit down with an insurance broker, they're going to look at you like, well, I know you haven't incurred a lot of debt on a mortgage of your own, but you've co-signed for a lot of people. And you had to, you had to pay back on those co-signs because they defaulted on their mortgages. So even though you're good with your mortgage, you're not very attractive because why are you out there co-signing on all this stuff? Like, well, that's my buddy from school and that's my brother-in-law and that's a guy I went to college with that I really, into. you've got your reasons. I understand it. I'm just saying as a financial package, you're not as attractive when you do that. So that's why the indemnity stuff, it becomes important because it, it might be a way to, to get it off your loss history or you might be absorbing some things there. So from, uh, you know, from a failure and success success perspective, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's stuff in the public and there's something that's not, you know, obviously anything ongoing you, you can't discuss. But it, what is some of the biggest failures you see contractors make from a, a legal perspective? And what do you see, see as some of the big, biggest successes that they that they uh, they see as a contractors? 
the biggest failure I see for contractors is if they just walk off the job because that will not go well unless you're just a it's just a small little thing that's left um, but if you walk off a job that becomes a big no-no a lot of times it turns into better business bureau complaints social media complaints apps like on the next door apps where people were i mean just it's hard to it's hard to deal with walking off a job because no one gets to see why or hear why you did it all all they see is that you walked off a job you left all this stuff out there you never went back uh, so that's the one i'm like yeah anytime someone walks off a job it's like yeah don't do that another one is failing to properly document and i know it's a pain but the scope of your work with that project because we've all been there that's why change orders are so dreaded but mm -hmm. you get out there you're working uh, something comes up, hey, some shingles blew off that little shed over there. Can you hear guys go knock that down for me at, during a lunch break? Sure. Well, somebody gets hurt or there's a fire later that night. There's, there's always something. No good deed goes unpunished. Or while you're out there and you're, you know, you're fixing someone's deck, they ask you if you could help put in some windows. And you're like, okay, and well, the window falls, somebody gets hurt, the window breaks, the window leaks a month later. Next thing you know, they're like, well, Scott, you and your guys put this window in. And you're like, what? We were out there for the decks. Um, so even though you want to help and you want to do some things, you have to be careful because anytime you get beyond your agreed upon scope of work, all those deals and things that you work so hard to put in place with respect to the language kind of go out the window because now you're beyond all of that. And if something goes wrong, uh, who's to say? Another example is uh, we've got clients that have companies that do things for their company, but then on the side they will be a consultant or they'll work for other companies. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens if, as the, as a consultant, not your own company, you're just out there being a consultant, you give inaccurate advice or something goes wrong on that project and now someone brings you in. You, you might not have any insurance whatsoever. So those are the things that I see that people do and, and really struggle how to explain how they're going to get out of those situations because they're no good answers. It's not a really a defined relationship. Now, as far as successes, um, the fact that there aren't as many lawsuits shouldn't be seen necessarily as a bad thing because arbitration and mediation and a lot of those clauses require that uh, has been productive and successful because it gives you that control that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And and that's, and that's a byproduct of, of years of, of people putting together standardized contracts and, and things that they want to work with. And now, uh, quite honestly, the technology that allows us to track work orders, purchase orders, and finances as far as payments and when payments are made, those are those are successful if people will continue to use those because <laughs> I don't know how many people listening have had jobs where if they pay through draws, then all of a sudden the work stops because that contractor got paid and so they're good for a little while. Uh, they stop showing up because they got their money or they got a substantial amount of their money where they're good. So it, or they start saying they haven't been paid and they're not showing up. And when you can show what the payment history has been and what it continues to be, 
it, it helps keep people flowing and keeps work moving. And so those things are, I've seen help, at least on my end of things, with managing not only the problems, but keeping the work going. If you had to give, you know, um, and and this kind of piggybacks a little bit on other stuff that you you have you have discussed already, uh, and I do want to comment on the whole concept of project administration and keeping paperwork together and all those things. <laughs> People don't realize how actually important that is because it seems to me, and you can tell me if you, if you see this a lot, it seems like the person who normally wins is the person who has the documentation. Because the other person doesn't have anything, and whatever they say in their documentation ends up being, well, what actually happened, you know, or viewed as that, you know. Um, and uh, what personal advice would you give to somebody um, looking to, you know, looking to seek a, you know, a, you know, a a senior level position within an organization, especially a construction organization, what skills, what abilities, what, what would they, what do they need to do to groom themselves to be in that position? Well, your first part about administration and documentation and whoever documents wins could not be more accurate. That's pretty much the end of the conversation because you, I've seen this in cases that have had to go deep into arbitration or litigation and have a trial. You can create a fiction on paper that never existed in reality. And it's almost impossible to refute, even with all the witnesses you want to bring in, because people can't remember six months ago, eight months ago, 10 months ago on the job. They just know that they showed up and things happened. Mm -hmm. But if you can document on paper that on November the 14th, 2017 at 9.15 a.m., you and I were in a construction trailer and we had a meeting about the sidewalk and that I had measured it earlier that day and it was not 2% off grade, even if that's not true, which I'm saying and people have, doc have said some things that people have said, that's not true, that's not true. I'm like, well, then why? Someone went to a lot of effort three years ago to document that this meeting occurred and you're saying that they just had the, the foreshadowing to know it was going to become important two and a half years later. I mean, that doesn't look, they're going to win. <laughs> like if they can document those things, that looks good. Now there's some things that help these days because we have a lot better camera use than we used to. And so a lot of job sites, they have cameras and they're recording. And if there's an event, I mean, it's documented, it's grabbed. Now some are get re-recorded over but for the most part, there's recordings now, there's job meetings, there's, I love construction files that you'll see, there might be 25,000, I have one right now that's over 30, you know, documents in the job file. Um, now, not, not all of those are important, but it shows, hey, this company did the right thing as far as they were documenting the issues with construction, compliance, fixing things that came up as they went along. Is it perfect? No, but no job site is going to be perfect. Uh, so that's great. Now, to the second part of your question about, you know, what kind of advice do you give to someone that wants to pursue an executive level position in construction? I'd start with education because education varies depending on how large a company we're talking about. I've seen GEDs to MBAs. Um, it, it really just kind of depends what, what we're talking about. But at the executive level, I think you have to understand that it's a business and you need to understand the goal of that business. 
if the goal, it might just be to pay employees and have enough left over for some of the owners. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's the majority of companies are that way, but it might also be to reshape residential construction in a given area or in a, an urban area. And even if it's at a short term, not necessarily loss, but pain because you're trying to introduce a, a new architecture to an area, you're going to have to get variances. You might have to go to a planning commission, a historical society. So you really have to understand, you know, what the goal of your business is. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand the goal, you can't do your job because it's with that goal in mind that you can then determine who your customers are or should be, how you're going to market and how you're going to staff and so on. But I would say before you're kind of in a position to do that, if you think that you want to be an executive level in the industry, uh, you need to study what others are doing and why and why some are successful and others aren't. So if you're you know young enough, I would say, you know, if we're talking to somebody who starting out or they're already in the industry and they want to broaden their skill set don't be afraid to part-term part-time intern for free like you just need to get in front of a mentor or shadow someone that you can talk to and, and understand how they approach things and why and sometimes that's easier said than done especially if they think that you're a competitor or you intend to be a competitor so you might have to you know, ditch that route or reach out to people in other states, but you can't be afraid to reach out to those, those individuals in the industry and to pick their brain on what they do, how they do it and why, or reach out to people that have been recently retired, offer breakfast, lunch, something. I know it's easier said than done with our restrictions these times, but you have to, you have to get that kind of wealth of knowledge and read listen and watch you know podcasts youtube videos and, and study websites you can get a lot of information about what's trending and, and what people are doing on their websites especially for marketing uh, but then ultimately you are going to have to have probably a post high school degree construction management was crazy popular uh, for about 10 years and I've heard people that, that sing its praises, they talk about it teaches you the ropes and it lets you know when to involve others. And, and that's often a sign of high intelligence is knowing your own limitations and when you need to defer to those others. Because if you're gonna be at the executive level, you can't do it all. You have to delegate, you have to know when to involve others. And, and that's, that's the whole point of you being at that level. If you're gonna run a company, you need to know what your goals are and you need to know how the best to go about achieving those. And then the last thing I would say about that is um, if you think you want to be an executive level, that, that requires time usually to build up to that. But during that process, you can't be afraid to change jobs if you feel that your passion is elsewhere. Meaning don't set your goal on becoming a construction level executive. And once you get into it, find out that, well, I know I want that for the resume, but my real passion, and when I say passion, I mean the thing that gets you up in the morning and when you go to bed, you're so excited to get up tomorrow and do it. Like it's what's driving you. Hmm. If, your passion is, if your passion is elsewhere, you're probably gonna have a lot more success following that passion than you know a, a tunnel vision shot of, I wanna be a construction, construction executive somewhere. And, and and that advice and uh, I'll, I'll just I, I think is so valuable because it's funny when you're passionate about doing something it doesn't feel like a job you know so <laughs> it's something that's you exactly, like doing you know it's it's cliche but uh, I have to admit that uh, it's something I myself did not appreciate um, I remember 
after law school, I was excited. I had a job and it was a paycheck, really. And my grandfather patted me on the shoulder. He called me son. He was my grandfather. He said, son, I'm just happy you found something you enjoy doing. But he said it in such a way that it felt kind of, you know, important. So I remember pausing, looking at him, hearing it, processing it, and being like, that makes no sense to me. You know, I just want, you know, I want a job and I want to be in the right city. And I'm like, who cares if I'm happy or not? It's a job. So it took many years and watching others chase paychecks and titles to realize that what he said when I was 22 was more important than all those other things. Because what you just said, again, I know it sounds cliche, but if you find somebody silly enough to pay you to do what you want to do, that's the best job out there. Yeah, no joke. That, that is true. And, and sometimes I think that when I say tell this to my kids, I, I think that they what they hear from me is that every day will be great. And that's not what I'm saying, you know? I mean, because oh, no, no, right. not every day is great. But at the end of the day, I always say when you go home on Friday, do you feel good about what you did this week? And if you do, then that's what you should be doing. You know, and uh, but not every task is going to feel that way. Not every task is going to fulfill you, you know. So um, to, last but not least, uh, great comments. Last but not least, I want to go through our, uh, you know, different items that I typically go through at the end where I, I want you to grade on a one to ten scale. One being the least important and in your case, from a legal perspective and one being the most important from a legal perspective so and you can explain your number if you like and they can all be 10 uh, so they don't want to be, <laughs> sure 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 so uh starting with number one scheduling um this is going to sound a little lazy on my part but from my perspective in risk management and litigation i'm going to rank these categories they're they're going to be nines or tens these are the things that distinguish you and will prevent headaches down the road. Mm -hmm. And I, I lumped them into that broad umbrella earlier of communication and expectation. You just have to realize that as long as the other party understands what's happening and when and why, you have a better opportunity to have shared expectations. And when you're all on the same page, it's easier to adjust when something comes up on a project. So scheduling, this is, you know, you've, you've got the contract, the bid, you've got your accounts, you're, you're talking about scheduling. You have to be, you have to have a realistic understanding of the scope of the project, how weather, staffing, subcontracting, and calendar timing throughout the year or years, if it's that big enough of a project, are going to play a role. And then you have to communicate that with whoever your point person is, depending on your role with the job, the owner, GC, whomever. But scheduling is important from my standpoint because when I get into risk management and litigation, a lot of times timing is, a, is something that someone's critical of. It didn't get done when promised. It's, you know, I wanted to be in, I have, you know, a building under lease and I can't even get my tenants in there because this thing's two weeks behind. They can't move in. I'm going to have to reimburse or I'm going to give rent deferrals. Uh, so scheduling becomes important. And as long as they understood from the get go, hey, you know, the foundation took longer than, than we thought because we only went down 18 inches before we hit rock. 
and we didn't do a geotech before because you didn't want to pay for it. I mean, as long as people understand that there is there could be delays and there are or are delays and they understand the consequences of those delays and they had some input on the, the scheduling like hey i didn't want to pay for that geotex and now we're going to be behind because we got to dig out a whole more a lot more rock and it's more expensive that was their call they can't be mad at anyone they could be mad but as long as they're not mad at you because that had nothing to do with you so scheduling scheduling i put up there it helps me in my world if, if we've been very upfront about the issues we we in vision we're going to encounter estimating this one is uh i don't see it that much because that's i'm after the fact and estimating happens up early happens much earlier but i know it's critical because you don't want to be so high that you don't get the bid or the job but you don't want to be so low that you have no shot at performing the promised work so you you want to be somewhere in that sweet spot, but then you also have to build enough wiggle room for the unknowns that always pop up and that create problems when they arise because no one likes change orders or to see their budget balloon. So I, I, I appreciate from the construction management side that estimating is almost a, an art more than a skill because you have to know where the position point is on the bid or pricing a job to someone. Because, uh, I mean, we've all seen home designs, landscaping designs, pool designs, where the owner will work with an architect or someone to come up with a design that they love, and then they'll just price out the build as though it was a commodity. They'll just approach us all like, hey, I'm, I'm going to build this. This is what it's going to look like. Who's going to do it for the cheapest amount of money? Mm -hmm. And so you and so estimating, I get why it's important. I don't see it as, as that much of an issue on, on my end of things. Um, I, I see it more of a, hey, the job ended up costing too much money and the person ran out of money, so they stopped paying. And then it deteriorates, but there's really not much that I could have done to help with that other than get the people talking again. And I'm going to pair the next two kind of together. Contracts mean the actual physical contract and contract administration. That's the actual execution. Right. So the contract administration, I don't have to deal with that often. Um, the contracts from a legal legal standpoint, I mean, they're, they're what define the scope of work and the rights and responsibilities to one another. And they're often long and wordy. People don't like them. They don't want to read them. But they are really the first place I go. Um, I want to know what was your job on this particular project? Did we perform? Did we deviate? What's what's being said? And then I'll start to go from there. But from day one, I need to know, hey, what are we talking about here? So that's that's number one for me is the contract. What what are we talking about? And I get it. A lot of times if you're a trade, you just want to land the job, get to do the work they love and get paid. But there are issues with insurance, workers' compensation, indemnity, arbitration, and just exactly who's going to do what on the project. They're no fun. Uh, they're boring. They're a great read if you're looking to fall asleep. But I can't stress enough that the contract, you got to pay attention to it because that's where everyone's going to start if something goes wrong. Design. Design is probably the area I see the most difficulty in litigation because the owner, I'm just going to say generically, has a design expectation, Is even if it's never on any of the drawings, but when the as-built doesn't look like they thought it would, people get upset. 
and it's never their own fault for not reading or realizing that initially they always get mad at the construction professional. So design, design, design. Um, I can give countless examples, things that you're like, what? There's no way. The first, the one that just jumps out to me is actually in New England. It required a 25 foot support beam that goes across the top of uh, the second floor and it, the, the the owner thought it was going to be decorative so they could have like antique wood and have a very kind of old world finish to the room because it was going to go straight up have spray in insulation no need for any rafter space great do you know how expensive it is to find that piece of wood we couldn't find it. It had to be basically a beam by the time it, the load they got done what it was going to get carried. And then we had to cosmetically dress it up. And the owner was furious because they wanted to be able to show, like, everyone, come in and look at this statement piece, this natural wood beam that goes across. And we're like, okay, we're going to have to shop mill, we're going to have to shop lumber yards, millworks everywhere to try to find what you're looking for at like 10 times the cost. Um, but it doesn't look, I mean, in their mind, they wanted to walk into this room, look up and almost see like an old world, like ship beam going across the top and be able to point to that. And everyone look at it and be like, Ooh, that's gorgeous. Cause it would have been pretty, but they had no, you know, understanding as to what that would do, the cost or the, structural integrity of the rest of the building if you didn't have it. Um, so anyway, I, design, I just can't stress enough. Design, design, design. Make sure everyone understands if it's going to look a certain way, you can only build it. You're limited by certain you know, setbacks. You're limited by resources and products available. And, and that's the huge stumbling back. Probably the number one thing that people complain about is that you know, someone made a mistake in design. And sometimes it's because you can't build this garage as big as you wanted to because you have setbacks in your neighborhood, but they don't care. So design, design, design. Now, that was number one for me. Well, um, sorry, it'll be 10. No, number, no. Uh, yeah. 10, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ten, ten, 10. It's a 15 uh, on my scale. Accounting. Construction accounting. Um, most people know what's happening with their money, but occasionally accounting becomes an issue because there isn't an established way to track work orders, purchase orders, or payments from one job to another. The funds get commingled. You can't tell if there's been an overpayment on one job and an underpayment on another. Plus, it becomes important to show that while the contract didn't say it, your level of pay isn't commensurate with the scope of your work on the project. And that's important because in my example about decks and windows, if they're like, Scott, you know, you did all this work out there. You're responsible. If for no other reason we could show, well, look, I only had a crew out there for half a day working on the deck. And that reflects the fact that I got paid $750. If you're telling me that I was helping put in all the windows, my price would have been three times that because I'd have had more people and been on the job longer. So accounting from my standpoint isn't quite as important because, um, it doesn't help me define the relationships as much as the contracts do, mm -hmm. the job file, and things like that. Business development. This is the – for, for me, it, it's not as important, but I get it. It's the, you know, this is the which came first topic, the chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. Do you need to be better 
better at your craft or better at selling. You could be the best in your field, but unless someone knows that, you might not have much to do. Or you could be the best at closing deals, but a horrible contractor, and neither is a good long-term spot to be in. You gotta have a marketing plan, even if that plan is to join trade groups and leave the marketing up to your spouse that never touches a nail gun, but knows how to, knows how to network and talk to people. The only, the, well, the time that I see, you know, your business plan, your marketing plan, is if you promise something and you didn't deliver it in in our world in the litigation context there can be a thing about consumer protection and they can be like look scott you're out there telling people that you can turn water into you know wine and so we hired you and now all of a sudden it's just fancy water like what's going on so the marketing stuff sometimes becomes an issue because they say they were misled but really that's tied into the design or the failure to manage a project as to how quickly it got done because they'll say, well, look, in order to land this job, look at your website and the things that you promised and look at the photos of your other jobs and you said ours was gonna look just like it, but ours doesn't look just like it. So that's the only thing that you have to be careful on, on our side of things uh, is that you don't, they don't use that to say that you promised or agreed to do some things that aren't represented otherwise. And last but not least, leadership. Leadership isn't as important in my line of interaction with the contractors, but let's be honest. Leadership is important in anything you want to do in life, and if you want to establish yourself or your company as one that's accountable, that that's the mark of a great company, and, and you got to have great leadership for that. Do what you said you were going to do. Fix it if you can't. And having someone in charge that keeps their eye on that ultimate challenge is good for all. I, I've seen trades bring in other trades to finish a project where circumstances change. Um, and, and leadership is the only way that allowed that to happen. Because if you had a bunch of people that were just blaming and wanted to win that particular argument on that particular project, that's a short-sighted approach. And uh, leadership is something that I love to have a good, strong leader when I work with because they're a decision person that can see that it's not just about winning or addressing this particular issues. They're willing to listen to what the problem is and try to tackle it from a different approach. So I, it's not the first thing I'm looking for, but when it comes time to really reaching decision points and resolving the case, it becomes important then. And, uh, you know, I want to give you, you'll have the last word, but I, I don't want to tell you, thank you, uh, Brian, for, uh, and, and don't send me a bill because uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be free. But, 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 but uh, I know your time is valuable. I, and, and honestly, the, I think this was extremely ins, uh, insightful to a lot of people um, that are, you know, in the audience here because we have to deal not necessarily with litigations, but the potential for litigations. And as you said, risk management, risk mitigation, you know, and uh, you gave a lot of good insight to that. And I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I, you know, uh, um, I, I just think you, you, you know, you conveyed the message and you gave some really good examples. So I want to pre, I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time and I want to give you the last word. I thank you for allowing me to do this because it is one of the things that personally I find pleasure in uh, helping educate others. So hopefully they don't need an attorney and I hope you're correct that it was insightful and provided some things that people can think about. Uh, and if they don't, 
hit up the comments sections, reach out to you, feel free to pass along my information. I'll be happy to see if it's something that we can help with or point somebody in the right direction. And uh, thanks for the time. Well, thank you so much, Brian. And uh, next week we'll be back with the next series of ConX.